Thanks, Chris. Can I continue in this theme that... <laughs> I'm so sorry. This is embarrassing for me, too. Is Jill nearby? Jill, my iPad is on my desk in my office, and I just realized that. So we'll get started without that, and that's just fine, but Jill can find that for me. Thanks, Jill. <laughs> that's a funny one. Well, um, <laughs> our passage today is not funny. Um, we're continuing our sermon series through the book of Matthew, in which we are learning about Jesus and discipleship. And this message we have titled, Jesus and Atrocity. Thank you so much, Jill. I appreciate that. That might be helpful at some point. I don't know. The English word atrocity refers to an extremely wicked or evil act, typically involving violence. And the reality of atrocities in our world is rightly disturbing. In my early 20s, I went through a season in my life, what some people would call a dark night of the soul. I went through a period of extreme questions and serious doubts. I thought about my own experiences. I thought about what I knew about the world around me. And I had more questions than I had answers. Today we would say that I was deconstructing my faith. In those days, for me, the reality of global atrocities, the reality of injustice, the reality of evil and darkness, it was deeply disturbing to me. It, was, it brought questions that were very difficult for me to untangle. I bring that up simply to say that if the darkness of this world is disturbing to you, I understand. If the darkness of this world is disturbing to you, the Bible understands and agrees with you. It's not the way it's supposed to be. It's not as God designed it from the beginning, we might say. Our text for today that Chris read for us, it revolves around an atrocity. In this passage, one young family packs up their belongings and takes their young child and flees to another country for refuge. And then all the young boys of a village are killed by the direction of the king. This is an atrocity. If this story had a color to it, that color, I suppose, would be midnight blue. Only a few shades away from pitch black. And yet in the deep darkness, in this deep darkness that we read about here in Matthew 2, the light of Jesus Christ 
shines. Matthew chapter 2 verses 13 through 23 is a narrative way, a storytelling way that Matthew gets across the point that the apostle John makes when he says in John chapter 1 verse 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. When we say that, we're not denying how dark the darkness really is. We're speaking only of how bright the light of Jesus Christ is through the darkness. This passage about the light of Christ in a world of darkness clearly unfolds in kind of three movements for us, each of which ending in a reference to the Old Testament. And what we'll do today is we'll follow along the way that this passage itself unfolds one section at a time. Part 1, verses 13 through 15, a paragraph in pretty much any translation of the Bible. Part 1, we might title, Refuge from Danger. At this point in chapter 2 of Matthew's biography of Jesus, if you will, his story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, in chapter 2 of the biography, Jesus is still a very young child. Now, because of verse 16, which specifically mentions boys two years old and under, Most people assume that by the time of the wise men, by the time of Matthew chapter 2, Jesus is a toddler who is learning to talk rather than an infant in swaddling cloths. In any case, in verse 13, we hear the instruction for Jesus' adoptive father named Joseph, rise, take the child and his mother, And flee to Egypt and remain there. Why? Because Herod, a king that we know in history as Herod the Great, because Herod is about to search for the child in order to destroy him. See, this is a striking fact that Matthew chapter 2 gives to us. When Jesus was a young child, his family had to seek refuge in another nation as foreigners. In a time of danger. When he was a child, his family, he and his family were refugees. Now I have a lot I'd love to say about that and a lot I'd love to say about a lot of things in this passage today. And I'm going to try to be really concise, but by trying to be really concise, we're going to have to move fast in some things. I'm going to need your understanding to work with me. And I'm also going to have some sub points for those of you who love outlines. All right. So three sub points here uh, about this, this issue of Jesus and his family seeking refuge in another nation. One of them, an ethical reflection. One of them. Uh, a, a discipleship reflection and one of them a theological reflection. The ethical reflection is this, is that Matthew 2.14 teaches us a new view of refugees, right? It teaches us a new view of refugees. Years ago, um, before he was the famous author that he is today, Tim Keller wrote a powerful little essay about the church and the poor. And toward the end of that essay, Tim Keller observes that once you realize that Jesus became poor, you can never view the poor the same way again. 
And the same thing happens as we reflect on Matthew 2.14. Once you realize that Jesus became a foreign refugee, you'll never be able to see refugees the same way again. When you meet neighbors like Andy or Pavi or Josmaya or Mohammed or Abbas or Noor or Haider, you won't see them the way that the news channels see them. You won't talk about them the way that the news channels talk about them. You might be stirred to advocate even on their behalf, to speak up for them, and to seek to serve other new neighbors who are arriving in Aurora every month. At a minimum, when you see that Jesus himself was a refugee, at a minimum, When you meet neighbors who themselves are refugees from other places, you'll sympathize in a certain way with their grief and their pain and their loss and the hardships and terrors and atrocities that their families must be fleeing. And in addition to that, you'll see in them something of their dignity. Something of the glory of the image of God in them. That's the ethical reflection. Once you realize that Jesus became a foreign refugee, you'll never be able to see refugees the same way again. But there's also a reflection point here related to what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And the discipleship reflection is this. Listen, we should expect that being associated with Jesus will make us like refugees in this world as well. Now, how do I get there? Sometimes people will give you the impression that if you follow Jesus, you'll be happier. If you follow Jesus, you'll be wealthier. If you follow Jesus, your kids will all get along great and you can have your dream home and your dream family and it will all be happy. But the American version of the gospel does not exactly fit with the New Testament version of the gospel, does it? For Mary and Joseph, being associated with Jesus did not make their lives happier and easier. He didn't give them their dream home in their dream community. For Mary and Joseph, being associated with Jesus made them refugees. For Mary and Joseph, being associated with Jesus sent them as sojourners into a foreign land where they would be recognized as outsiders who would never fully belong. For Mary and Joseph... Being associated with Jesus meant living as a sojourner. Sojourner is the word that Peter uses to describe how all Christians live in this world. We live like refugees, like people who have a foreign home and a higher allegiance that distinguishes us from our neighbors who we really do love. All around us. No matter what nation we live in and regardless of our citizenship status, every one of us, if we are followers of Jesus, 
merely by being associated with him, are called to live like sojourners, refugees, foreigners, as long as we live here in this world. See, being associated with Jesus is infinitely worth it, and I really do believe it is. But being associated with Jesus does not take all of the suffering out of our lives. In fact, sometimes, and this is hard to swallow when it happens, sometimes being associated with Jesus will actually add hardship to your life. And if we have absorbed this American idea that if I'm following Jesus and if I'm serving God, then it should all be happy and it should all get easier and I should get the dream home and the dream community and the life I always longed for. If we've absorbed that idea and we're following Jesus and we run into hardship, not only because cancer happens to everybody, but because sometimes being associated with Jesus multiplies or adds to the hardships we experience in this life. If we have this American idea and we experience suffering in the pathway of following Jesus, we end up just saying, I don't get it. Perhaps we even end up shaking our fists in anger at God because he's not giving us what we expect. And yet, the New Testament itself paints a very different picture of what it means to be associated with Jesus Christ. From the very beginning of the Jesus story, we learn to adjust our expectations. Being associated with Jesus may not make your life easier. In fact, it may make you something like a sojourner here in this life. That's the discipleship reflection on these verses. But there's an even deeper theological issue that this verse brings us into contact with. Matthew wants us to notice in Matthew chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, he wants us to notice this thing, this element of biblical theology. He wants us to see how the story of Jesus connects in with the story of all of the scriptures. And so he says in verse 14, if you look there with me, Actually, it's in verse 15, so that's why you won't find it in 14. If you look in verse 15, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. This was to fulfill what was spoken. That's a quotation from our friend Hosea. In Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. Now, the interesting thing is that Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, is not a predictive prophecy. Hosea is not talking about a future Messiah who will one day have these qualifications or something like that. In Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, Hosea is prophetically actually looking backward even from his own day simply to consider how did God form the people of Israel? How did God shape his people in the past? And Hosea reflects, out of Egypt, 
I have called my people out of Egypt. I have called my son. And so in what sense does Matthew say that Jesus fulfills a word from the prophet Hosea, which was not a predictive prophecy, but a reflective prophecy? How does Jesus fulfill this? This will help you read your Bible. Jesus is fulfilling this prophecy, not in the sense that Hosea had predicted something and then Jesus did it, but in the sense that there are patterns woven into the story of redemption in which Jesus is the ultimate example. There are patterns woven into the story of redemption that lead to and point to and ultimately find their crescendo or culmination or fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Theologically, we would use the term typology to describe this. And so it works something like this. I know this is a deep theological topic, but track with me here. Way back in... Way back in the story of Israel, in the book of Genesis, there was another person named Joseph. Many, many, many generations before the Joseph in this passage. And that Joseph went ahead of the other people into the land of Egypt. And on his own, he suffered deeply. You can read about it yourself later. And he prepared a place so that eventually when a time of crisis came and the rest of the sons of Israel, the rest of the children of Israel, the rest of the children of promise, the rest of the people of God needed to seek refuge from a famine, Joseph had already gone ahead to Egypt and prepared a place for them so that they could go and find refuge in Egypt. And then many generations later, the people of Israel had become slaves in that land, which at one time had been a place of refuge for them. And then there in that place, God delivered a baby boy out of deadly danger. God delivered a baby boy named Moses who would become a deliverer for all of God's people, Israel. And there in that place, God's people, Israel, experienced in a profound way what it means, what it meant to be redeemed, to be delivered, to be rescued by the hand of God. Now, before I get into how Jesus fulfills that pattern, let me add a difficult question. The Bible is not afraid of our difficult questions. I think sometimes we need to lean into them. When you listen to that whole story of redemption, does it ever occur to you that an omnipotent God could have just eliminated the famine and done this a whole lot more quickly and easily? So why, if an omnipotent God could have just eliminated the famine, why go to Egypt for refuge knowing that the people will become slaves there and need to be delivered? Why? The Bible has some uncomfortable 
dimensions to its stories. And one of the uncomfortable dimensions of this is the simple fact that while there would have been a quicker and easier fix for the problem, just get rid of the famine. While there would have been a quicker and easier fix for the problem, God's way is not normally to take the quick fix or the easiest answer. More often than not, God's way is working through a long, slow answering. Fast forward now to the days of Jesus and his adoptive father, Joseph. There is a new king on the throne who threatens the life of all the young male children, who threatens the life specifically of Jesus. Why doesn't God just destroy that king and rescue Jesus the easy way? There's a much quicker fix. And there's something mysterious about God's power. It does leave us with more questions than answers sometimes. Sometimes I feel downright perplexed if I try to search too hard and figure it all out. Sometimes the only words that fit are the words of the Psalms that say, How long, O Lord? There's something mysterious. But for some reason that may feel deeply mysterious to us, instead of offering the shortcut solution or the quickest kind of fix, heaven directs Joseph to take his family to Egypt for refuge. You see, like Joseph before him, Jesus will go to Egypt in order to suffer for the rest of God's people. And in order to prepare a refuge for them. Like Moses before him, Jesus was delivered out of deadly danger in order to be a deliverer for many. And like all of Israel before him, Jesus will not be spared by the shortcut or the quick fix kinds of answers. The New Testament says it like this. Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people for because he himself has suffered when tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. See, as we read about Jesus' journey to Egypt as a refugee, we realize that in a world of darkness and danger, God's mysterious providence does not always give us the quick fixes and the easy answers, but God does give us a merciful and faithful high priest who himself has suffered, who himself has become like us in every respect, no quick fixes and all. God does give us a merciful and faithful high priest who is able to sympathize, able to atone for our sins, and able to help us in our time of need. Sometimes we want a quick answer to our questions. 
Instead, God gives us Jesus. Our story begins with seeking refuge from danger. The story continues with part two. A lament in the darkness. Verses 16 through 18. Every Christmas season, there's a song that we sing and I start crying. It's O Holy Night. And it's that line that says, In His name, all oppression will cease. Every Christmas season we sing that song and I dream of a world in which no children are ever abused. A world in which no children go hungry. A world in which no children are treated as inferior. A world when no child will wrestle with mental health challenges. No more genetic disorders. No more evil. No more death. But the fact remains that after that holy night when Christ was born, all oppression has not yet ceased. In fact, the very disturbing thing about Matthew chapter 2 is that after that holy night when Christ was born, it's not just that oppression had not ceased, it's that oppression is escalating. The evil one is enraged. Children in Bethlehem die. Not because of cancer, but because of Jesus. And because of an evil king's rage against Jesus. My friend and fellow pastor Josh Anderson calls these children the first martyrs of the Christian faith. Children we may one day see in heaven. Robed in glory. Having died because of Jesus. This passage puts us face to face with a very dark and grim reality. In verse 16, King Herod gives the order that all male children in Bethlehem should be killed. And so the law enforcement of officials who are loyal to the king and who are loyal to the empire, they go door to door through the little town of Bethlehem. And surely this was not a silent night. Two week olds who can barely hold up their own heads. Ten month olds who are learning to stand. 20-month-olds who are learning to talk. 
are ripped away from their mothers and their fathers, their grandmas, their grandpas, their older brothers and sisters, and their lives are extinguished. And remember, this is perfectly legal. Not only permitted, but in this case, ordered by the governing authorities. Furthermore, this was not as shocking in their culture as it would be in ours. In the Roman Empire that Jesus was born into killing or abandoning unwanted babies, unwanted infants, was surprisingly, shockingly common. Discarding was the term that respectable people used for the practice in their day. If you had a child you didn't want, or if your child was a gender that you hadn't hoped for, and you were a respectable Roman citizen, you might choose to discard the child. So this atrocity was legally permissible. It was culturally tolerable. And, we might add, it was only a small percentage of the population in one little town. Given what we know about the size and history and so forth, of Bethlehem, maybe this was 15 or 20 boys' lives lost. But we should be crystal clear. Even if this was perfectly legal, and even if this was culturally tolerable, and even if it was just a small percentage of the total population, does that make it any less of a violation of human rights? Does that make Herod's action any less of an atrocity? Does it make this injustice any less grieving? The scriptures do not think so. Matthew goes to the book of Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, Chapter 31, verse 15. And he grabs this imagery of the heart of a mother who is lamenting and who refuses to be comforted for those children are no more. Some of you know that kind of grief. Maybe after losing a child of your own. That kind of mother's or father's grief that says, I will not be comforted for this. I cannot even imagine a scenario or a kind of comfort that would in any way measure up to the grief that I feel. This is how Matthew views the tragic loss of these 15 or 20 boys' lives. Now, I'd like to pause here for a moment. Um, 
I'm going to pause in our exposition of this text and talk about a related issue today, a related issue of abortion. Today is a day that many recognize as Sanctity of Life Sunday, coordinating with the 49th anniversary of the Roe v. Wade decision in 1973, which opened the door for legal abortion in America for 49 years now. While we're talking in Matthew's Gospel about the extinguishing of 20 boys' lives in Bethlehem, it's fitting to take an aside and to consider a legally permissible and culturally tolerable practice in our culture that takes approximately 600 or 700,000 lives each year in the United States. Should we not view this as a tragic loss? Shouldn't we lament alongside Rachel? Now I realize that talking about abortion is really challenging because of how contentious and politicized abortion has been for more than 50 years now. And one of the things that's happened is that there are two sides of the debate which have grabbed hold of a certain idea and which kind of yell their ideas back and forth at each other without spending much time listening to each other. On the one hand, many insist that we must value women's rights. We must value women's freedom. We must prioritize women's health. The other side, on the other hand, many insist that we must value the lives of babies who are not yet even born. And the result of fixating on only one of these two justice issues, the result of fixating on only one or the other, can be damaging, even devastating. And I think that women who have participated in abortions tend to see how damaging it is that the culture around them tends to fixate on only one or the other. I think every woman I've spoken with who has participated in abortion is absolutely convinced that women need much more support. And I think every woman I've spoken with who has participated in abortion also totally and deeply believes that the lives of children matter. That there is a very real sense of grief and loss without that child or those children in her life. What if these questions of justice are better discussed as a both-and instead of an either-or? As Christians, as human beings, we should care about women's health. Amen? 
As Christians, as human beings, we should care about women's freedoms. Yes. As Christians, as human beings, we should stand against women being treated as inferior in any way. As Christians, as human beings, we should stand up for women's rights, whether those women are married or single. As Christians, as human beings, we should listen to women's voices and stand in support of women who have been abused. Absolutely. And it is wrong that too often Christians have been willing to overlook these things. Or simply even to presume them. As Christians who are called to follow and represent Jesus Christ, we should be on the leading edge of caring about women and caring about their needs and supporting them in crisis, whether they are married or single. I have a lot more I could say about that, but time. On the one hand, Christians should be eager to stand up for and advocate for women. This matters a great deal to me. And I thank God for those of you in this room who have demonstrated by your own example that you are eager to love and serve and support and stand up for women. But on the other hand, as Christians, we should also be eager to advocate For children, for elementary school kids, for toddlers, for infants, and even for babies who have not yet been born. Now, I know that at the end of the day, if we're going to have a deep and long and substantial discussion about abortion, we're going to need to talk about what makes a person a person. When does a person become a person? There's more to say than I would have time for right now in a brief aside in the middle of a sermon on Matthew 2. But perhaps I can say this much. To stop a baby's heart from beating... To stop a baby's brain from thinking. To stop a baby's organs from functioning. Or simply to end her life before she has a chance to smile at her mom. Or giggle with her grandma and grandpa. Or play with her sisters and brothers. To extinguish her years, to extinguish her life way before she can make a choice about college. To extinguish her life long before she can make decisions about who to date or who to marry. If we support practices that terminate her health and her future freedom, are we really people who stand for human dignity and human freedoms? Listen, we're here to support and to stand for the freedoms of women. The dignity of women, that's good. 
Women to promote your health and your safety. Yes. But to make a life-ending decision for a little girl or a little boy prior to her or his birth, that's another matter. And this is why so many Christians take time to advocate for policies and practices and to support single and married women. This is why so many Christians take time to invest in these things. Now, if you've participated in an abortion in the past, I want you to know that I don't view you as an enemy. Maybe, maybe you felt like some Christians view you as an enemy. I'm sorry. But my prayer for you is that in the church of Jesus Christ, I hope you will experience the grace of God and the loving support of Jesus' family. If you feel in any way that I've misrepresented you or misunderstood you, I would be honored if you'd let me know. I'd be honored to take any amount of time to listen. You can email me. Or if you don't know my email, you can get in touch with the church office. Or if you don't trust me, you can find someone else you would trust. We'd love to listen. But let me come back to Matthew 2 and let's kind of connect these dots together. Okay? When we read this historical narrative in Matthew chapter 2, I think we get it that when children lose their lives, it is a tragic and lamentable grief. No matter how culturally acceptable and no matter how currently legal that injustice might be. And in the same way, when we think about this issue of children losing their lives... We need to be clear that no matter how culturally tolerable and no matter how legally permissible it may be, the practice of abortion is tragic and lamentable and destructive. Matthew chapter 2 not only shows us this stark reality of lives lost, But in this section, which focuses on the lament in the darkness, we not only see the the fact of lost lives, but we also see kind of a way forward to respond to these facts of lost lives in our world. I'm thinking here about Rachel's lament. We talked about lament a couple of weeks ago. Lament is not just grief. It is grief before the face of God. And it's not only grief before the face of God. It is grief before the face of God that leads toward hope. And as Matthew teaches us to weep and to grieve over tragedies like the loss of 15 or 20 boys' lives... He's teaching us not just to be sad. He's teaching us to lament by leading us to 
Jeremiah 31. And like the Psalms that we looked at two weeks ago, Jeremiah's interest in lament is not only that we would grieve and not only that we would even grieve before the face of God, but that we would grieve in a way that leads to hope. How do I know that? Because if we go back to Jeremiah 31, where Matthew found this quotation, do you know how this quote works? Matthew recognizes there are kinds of grief in this world such that we feel I will never be able to experience hope again. Rachel is pictured as weeping over her lost children in such a way that she will not be comforted. But look with me for a moment at how it works out in the very next verse in Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah 31, 15 says, Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation, that's lamenting, and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Thus says the Lord, very next verse. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and keep your eyes from tears for there is a reward for your work declares the lord and they shall come back from the land of the enemy there is hope for your future the lord says and then if we keep on reading in jeremiah chapter 31 we'll get to the promise of the new covenant that jesus himself emphasized on the night when he was betrayed and he held up the cup and said This cup is the new covenant sealed in my blood. Listen, we live in a world where there are real tragedies that are really grieving, that we really should weep over. Christians don't believe that we need to whitewash history. Christians don't believe that we need to ignore the evil. Christians don't believe that we need to pretend like the evil hasn't happened. Christians don't need to rewrite history to protect the story of the empire. Christians can look square in the face of evil and injustice and tragedy. And we can lament. But we lament not as those who have no hope. We lament as those who know the Lord who, the Lord who gives us freedom to come to Him, the Lord who teaches us how to grieve rightly, also says there is a future. And as one child is delivered out of the town of Bethlehem, we rightly join Rachel in weeping, sobbing feeling almost as though no comfort could ever fit until we realize that one child who was delivered was delivered to be a deliverer of many. Until we realize that he promises to come again and make all things new and wipe every tear from our eyes. As we realize that, we don't need to ignore the darkness. We don't need to pretend that injustices don't exist. But we're set free. We're set free to hope, realizing this is the dark before the dawn. It is dark 
this darkness is not the end of the story. The darkness is real, but the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not, will not, cannot overcome it. That leads us to a final section in this passage, and I am aware that time is ticking on, so I'm going to do this fast. All right. Third section of our passage, part three, we might title Faithfulness in Humility. It's this passage that pictures Joseph taking his family up out of Egypt after Herod has died. Taking his family up out of Egypt and returning to his homeland. But then there are fears. He sees who's on the throne now and he says, ah, this doesn't seem safe. It's interesting, one of the most famous theologians uh, in European history is a fellow named John Calvin, who himself was a refugee. As a teenager, he had to flee for his safety from his home country and never returned again for the rest of his life. Lived his entire life in Geneva, Switzerland, not Illinois. Lived his entire life in Geneva as a foreigner who spoke with a foreign accent. And one day he was teaching from the book of Matthew to other refugees living in Geneva. They used to do Bible studies at 6 a.m. for the refugees who spoke French. And one day while they were studying through the book of Matthew and commenting on this passage, John Calvin, as a refugee, speaking to refugees, I think he sensed something that's in this passage. And he observed to his fellow refugees that fear and faith are not always opposed to each other. In fact, as Joseph listens to the directions of heaven and he uses the wisdom that is woven into the fears in his own heart, he makes a wise decision that fits perfectly in God's plan. And he moves his family not back to the little town of Bethlehem, but to the obscure town of Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? That's the kind of town that he moved his family to. A place of quiet obscurity where his son can grow in the faithfulness of humility. There's something else in this passage. There's more I could say about Jesus. Time, we're going to keep hurrying here. There's something else I want to draw our attention to and then I'll land, all right? But It's the example of Joseph in this passage. Matthew wants to teach us about Jesus and Matthew also wants to teach us about discipleship. And one of the ways we learn about discipleship in the book of Matthew is by following how disciples follow Jesus. In a way, Joseph is the first disciple of Jesus in the gospel of Matthew in a certain sense. He hears directions from heaven, and what does he do? He obeys. And what else does discipleship look like in Joseph's life as best as we can tell? Here's the answer. It's simply remaining loyal to Jesus through all of the challenges, through the darkness, through the difficulties, and even through the years of obscurity and humility. What does discipleship mean for Joseph? He obeys the commands from above and he simply remains loyal to Jesus. Now that doesn't mean that our loyalty is ultimately what it all depends on. 
The gospel of Jesus Christ tells us the good news that we are saved, not by our faithfulness, but by his faithfulness, not by what we've done for him, but by what he's done for us. But as people who are brought into union with Jesus, it changes us. And we're invited into this journey of discipleship, which like Joseph will involve obeying God's directions from above and simply remaining loyal to Jesus through the darkness, through the challenges, through the pains, through the trials, and even in years of humble obscurity. This is what discipleship looked like for Joseph And very often, this is what discipleship will mean. This is what discipleship will look like for us. What does this passage teach us about Jesus? It teaches us that he is the light of the world. And that the light of the world shines in the darkness. He entered this world of darkness. He joined us in our griefs and our sorrows. He carried our griefs and our sorrows. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not, will not, cannot overcome it. And what does that mean for us as disciples of Jesus? Because Jesus is the light of the world, because Jesus is the light that shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it, This passage calls us, no matter how dark it gets outside, no matter how dark the circumstances may become around us, no matter how many tears we shed rightly over griefs and tragedies and atrocities in the world we live in, it invites us to place our hope in Jesus Christ and to remain loyal to him as we continue to represent him, shining his light into this world full of darkness.